here in 1 Samuel 16. It's out with the old and in with the new, but it's not going to be as easy as that. Um, Israel's first king, Saul, doesn't want to go. But through continual rebellion and unbelief, uh, he's been served notice, as we have seen in our last couple weeks. Uh, Let me quote the Lord through Samuel. He fired the king, saying, because you've rejected the word of the Lord, Samuel said, he's rejected you as the king over Israel. The Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you today. That's important today. Today. And has given it to one of your neighbors, to one better than you, a man after God's own heart. Now, just so we don't forget, it wasn't over one or two minor infractions there. Um, It was an overall failure to thrive in the faith and in relationship with the Lord that Saul is no longer going to be king. He really doesn't appear to ever have come to saving faith over a period of several years. And so this is why he is removed from the kingship. Uh, Now, what makes God's spiritual CPR, and that's what I kind of have seen going on here in these last couple chapters of the Holy Spirit and God just working with this king to kind of bring him to life. And the thing that makes God's CPR on human beings work is a response from us. God calls, we answer. God chooses, we respond. And Saul apparently did neither. Now, notice uh, the message to Samuel is effective today, back in chapter 15, verse 28. He says, you're no longer king, but Saul, in keeping with our spiritual assessment of him, holds on with a murderous grip to that position. He doesn't belong in that position. God put him in that position, then removed him from it, but he's ignoring that part and clinging. He's going to cling for 15 years, you see. Now, his replacement, or in with the new, Um, Well, it will take him 15 to 20 years to actually become the new king. Um, That neighbor or that better man, and by the way, when David is called the better man, it's, it's because of his faith. It's not because of his character. We see some of the same kinds of uh, weak flaws in David and, and, uh, it's disconcerting what we see. He's not, we are not better because we have better character or we're, we're, we do good deeds. We're better because we're, we have justified faith and that God has gifted his righteousness to us. And so um, that neighbor is the one with a genuine heart for God. And this will call the king elect, like we have a president elect before he's actually elected, but he doesn't take office till January. Now, this, in this case, we have David introduced last uh, time as the king elect uh, in a dramatic spiritual scavenger hunt kind of thing, you'll recall, where we're intended to learn several lessons. And so as we saw last week, just to catch some of you up who missed the last couple Wednesdays, God sends the high priest Samuel to Mr. Jesse's home in Bethlehem to find Saul's replacement for king. He said to Samuel, I've chosen one of his boys to be king. 
Now, you'll remember that Mr. Jesse's been told, bring all your sons to a special service, a special church service. You could think of it that way. And he brings seven of his sons, and Samuel gets ready with the anointing oil. He sees the number one son, Eliab, as we saw last week. Uh, He looks good on the outside, but he isn't the right man. And so the Lord kind of rebukes Samuel and says, come on, man, looks like a king on the outside, but he lacks the qualifications on the inside. The Lord said to Samuel, don't be swayed by his appearance or how tall he is, for I've rejected him as a candidate. The Lord does not look at the things man looks at. Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. So all seven sons parade by Samuel, you'll remember. The Lord has seven no's for the seven bros. (laughs) I thought that was so funny. So this is, so he says, this is it? Come on. Yeah, he says, you, you, none of these kids are the one. Do you have any other kids? And you'll, you remember last week, he's like, well, technically, yes, there is a male offspring of mine. And, uh, but he's out with the sheep, shepherding the flock, playing the harp, writing poems, and practicing with the slingshot. Uh, and he's like, well, you better go get him because nobody's sitting down until we see him. So in, uh, they come out of breath, as it were, in tow is a good-looking, bright-eyed, perhaps freckled face, high school boy. I say perhaps because the word ruddy uh, could mean freckled or red or fair-skinned. And so then the Lord said, he's the one. Bring out the oil and anoint him. So this is where we're picking up the story uh, with flabbergasted and no doubt envious brothers watching, along with dad's amazement who didn't even invite him to the service, uh, the most famous and the most honored man in all of scripture, the one who is now overlooked, isolated, alone in a sheep pen, thought little of, and really considered a nobody. He's introduced now. We've met him. He's got oil dripping down his hair, and um, David will become one of the greatest men of the Bible. He's mentioned a thousand times in the scripture, more than Abraham, more than Moses. Jesus, our Messiah, God the Son, calls himself not son of Abraham, not son of Moses. He calls himself, I'm a relative, I'm a grandson on my mother's side in the flesh to King David. 28 generations before King David lived, 28 generations after King David, through David's own biology comes the Messiah. So he's on the scene now. He's only 16 or 17 years old. And uh, now uh, it all started here in the sheep pen and now anointed. So verse 13, we'll catch up now. So Samuel took the horn of oil. The horn is just a hollowed out container of a cow's horn made into a container, a container flask of oil, and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. Oh, happy day. And from that day on, the spirit of the Lord came upon David in power. Samuel then went to Ramah. 
Now the spirit of the Lord had departed from Saul, and an evil spirit from the Lord tormented him. Saul's attendant said to him, See, an evil spirit from God is tormenting you. Let our Lord, meaning the king, command his servants here to search for someone who can play the harp. He will play when the evil spirit from God comes upon you and you will feel better. So Saul said to his attendants, find someone who plays well and bring him to me. Well, let's pause there. Reflect, number one, God's unlikely messenger. Now, for the next 15 chapters or so, we're going to see two different scenarios play out. And it's really the theme of 1 Samuel, two distinct destinies, a man receptive to the Holy Spirit and his rise and his blessing, a man resistant to the Holy Spirit and his decline and misery. So right away, King Saul and King David uh, illustrate a New Testament principle in its embryonic form here. Romans 8, let me read you. Uh, from verse 5. Those who live according to the sinful nature have their minds set on what that nature desires, but those who live in accordance to the Spirit have their minds set on what the Spirit desires. The mind of sinful man is death, but the mind controlled by the Spirit is life and peace. The sinful mind is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. And then again in Galatians 6 and verse 7, a man reaps what he sows. The one who sows to please his sinful nature from that nature will reap destruction. The one who sows to please the spirit from the spirit will reap eternal life. Now, Paul is using a metaphor there in Galatians 6 and verse 7 that I just read. And he's saying that doing wrong or sinful things is like planting seeds of poisonous plants. So when we gossip or steal or lie or hate or do these things or doing what we shouldn't or not doing what we should, we always forget that other part there. That is considered like planting something nasty and soon the Bible says it will spring up and cause you bitterness and a problem. Now, conversely, uh, sowing to please the Spirit, when we love somebody when we, with God's love, when we forgive, when we pray, when we die to self, when we give, you know, uh, sooner or later we're planting seeds of beautiful things and luscious fruit or beautiful flowers, things that will bless us. So David's been sowing to please the Spirit, and now for the next 15 chapters we're going to see him worshiping the Lord, sowing to the Spirit, and enjoying life and peace, even though there are some very intense times. Um, And then we're going to see Saul, who's been sowing to please himself, out on the battlefields there rebelling against the Lord. We're going to see his unraveling before our very eyes. Now, all that to say, and I said all of that for a reason, and here's the reason I took us a little bit on that trail. The natural consequences of their behavior will now be seen. So, important. God is not arbitrarily looking at two men and blessing one and cursing another, like a big meanie. 
You know, you can't be king. You didn't obey me all the way. And so I'm going to take away your king, king, kingship. And I myself am going to depart and going to send an evil spirit. No, it's not quite as simple as that. Uh, the Lord is allowing the fruit of these two men's choices, spiritually speaking, to come to fruition. They've been planting, and the Lord says, okay, you've been planting. Now it's time to reap. And one is going to reap some really beautiful things, and another one is going to reap some very poisonous things. So verse 13, in front of the brothers, which is one of my favorite lines in there, in front of the brothers, David is anointed. And the oil, of course, we talked about this, the symbol of the Holy Spirit setting a man apart for service. So verse 13, now we see outwardly the truth of what's been happening in this guy's, David's heart, uh, in an inward reality. So it doesn't start with a flask of oil like, okay, this was what happened. The flask of oil got broken over his head, and now, now it's happening. It's already been happening. It's kind of like baptism. You know, we don't go to baptism to become a Christian. We, baptism is the sign, the outward sign of an inward grace that's already happened here. And so uh, we see that from, the text says, from that day, the Holy Spirit begins to work powerfully in and through David's life, but he's already been a presence inside. Now, when we hear that the Spirit comes upon somebody with power, which your text says, the Holy Spirit is coming upon David with power, uh, we picture a warrior slaughtering an army like back in the judges, or doing some miraculous feat of strength. And this is true in part, but listen, this power is for ordinary living. David speaks with wisdom now. He becomes discerning. He knows how to handle difficult situations and difficult people. He has power to be holy, to be patient, to be kind and loving and merciful and self-control. So before David is able to conquer on the battlefield as king, David will conquer himself by the power of the Holy Spirit. He will learn to take thoughts captive, not to be bullied around by his emotions, but to live anchored by the word of God and the promises from heaven. Listen to this, Proverbs 16, verse 32 Better a patient man than a warrior, a man who controls his temper than one who takes a city. My friend, listen to me. When we talk about the Holy Spirit coming upon us in power, listen to Proverbs 16. Better a patient man than a warrior. The power of the Holy Spirit has come upon us, not so much to do miraculous signs and wonders as it is to give us inner power of holiness to escape the corruption in the world and to live godly lives and be empowered for Christian service. Amen? amen. I wanted to amen so bad there. <laughs> now, how awesome to have God's spirit of power upon us. So just so you know, you don't need to be envious of David because we have it better than he did. Now, what was a transitory blessing for a believer in the Old Testament is a permanent reality for any believer under the new covenant. 
Acts chapter 1, verse 8. But the Holy Spirit will come upon you in power, and you will be my co-laborers all over the earth. You will work with me because of that power. You'll have power to have Christian service to the utmost regions of the world. Now, why, why is it different from the Old Testament with the Holy Spirit? Well, God the Son, Jesus has been crucified and sacrificed for the sins of the world. He's risen from the dead, conquering the grave, our sins, and the devil himself. He's ascended into heaven. He sent the Holy Spirit who permanently abides in us forever. And so David and the Old Testament Bible heroes only get a foretaste of what's fully ours in the Lord Jesus Christ. A believer today never has to pray what Psalm 51 and verse 12. Don't take your Holy Spirit from me. Cast me not from your presence because Jesus said in John chapter 6, that would be theologically impossible. He said, anyone who comes to me, anyone the Father gives to me, I will never drive them away. Now, it's an interesting word in the Greek there. Never means Thank you. I will never drive you away. So it's impossible. It's wonderful. Hebrews 13, 5. Never will I leave you. Never will I forsake you. Interesting Greek word there as well with the never. Guess what it means? It means, uh, or you need to get on the page with me. <laughs> it means Come on, get excited about this. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never drive away. John 6 and verse 37. So we don't need to pray it, but King Saul should have prayed it. Verse 14. Now the Spirit of the Lord had departed from Saul, and an evil spirit from the Lord tormented him. So there are two upsetting thoughts in one verse. So I'm going to take a little time to unupset them. All right. Terrifying thought here. The spirit of the Lord has departed the power that accompanied the position as Israel's king was gone. Now, really, that's the idea here. The Lord was done using Saul as king. He was done striving with him in that position. He had a couple, three chapters of chances after chances to get it right with God. And the Lord was willing to help him and to, to uh, help him to get it. He really wanted him to. Uh, he was with him. The spirit of the Lord was upon him in the sense that he let him win battles. And he spoke in the name of the Lord there. But now the Lord said clearly, please step down. And Saul has said no. So God changes his strategy with him and removes his blessing. All right. That's really the idea there. It's not so much that Saul can't know the Lord anymore. It's not so much that he can't repent He's just no longer king, and the Lord is no longer with him in that capacity. And so really, it's saying, you know, this chapter in Saul's life, it's, it's over. Uh, now, instead, the Lord sends an evil spirit to cause him distress. Now, my first thought is that God's relentless love 
is still going after this guy. Now, the Lord has tried the sweet presence of the Holy Spirit and fame and victory and acclaim and gifting him and using him and helping him to fight battles. He's tried that. And guess what? Flatlined spiritual heart rate. No pulse. He tried whispering to him, as C.S. Lewis, and as I quote every week, C.S. Lewis's famous line, God whispers to us in our pleasures, he shouts to us in our pain. And so God's thinking, perhaps, let's try a different strategy with this guy. Instead of the sweet presence of the Holy Spirit, let's try the distressing presence of an unholy spirit. Now, God sending a demon to torment Saul. Number one, God is sovereign. God is in control of everything. He possesses sovereign means to possess supreme or ultimate power. So the Lord is God of the living and of the dead. He is God of heaven and hell. He is God of the boulders on earth and the rocks on Mars. The same Lord is the Lord of the shark and the angel fish the butterfly and the dragonfly, the earthworm and the serpent, angels and demons, saved and unsaved. He is Lord. And he doesn't need their permission to use them. And he doesn't need them to claim him as Lord to be Lord over them because he uses them with or without their knowledge, with or without their permission. So God is able to make use of evil, yet remain completely distinct and morally pure. He, does, he can punish, he can chastise, he can rebuke, he can correct using evil men or diabolical spirits. Now, do I even need to say that God is good? God is good, and we just know that in our hearts. So, you know, this is the message we have heard from him and declare to you, God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. First John chapter 1 and verse 5. Two great examples of how God is just sovereign, even using evil. Um, remember Joseph and his murderous brothers back in Genesis from 35, 36, all the way to 50, I mean, they wanted to kill their brother out of envy. They left him for dead. They just about did kill him. Uh, but God had mercy on him. And at the end, they came cowering because their father had died. And they thought, no, no, this guy's going to get tweaked. And he's going to kill us because he's so powerful. Now God exalted Joseph. And listen to what he said there in Genesis chapter 50 and verse 20. He says, you intended in evil to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. Now, I also am thinking about Pharaoh. In Romans chapter 9 and verse 17, for the scripture says to Pharaoh, I raised you up for this very purpose, that I might display my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So he says he's the Lord of Pharaoh. He's in control. Pharaoh hardened his heart about six times. Count them up. And the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart about the same number. The Lord's saying, if you're going to be like this, you know what? I'm the Lord. I've got a plan. I'm way ahead of you. All right? So uh, if you want to be a bad boy, I need a bad boy in my play. 
I'd say, you're trying out for the bad boy part. I'm going to give you the bad boy part. All right? But I'm directing. I'm producing. All right? See? But I'm not the author. I'm not the author of the evil. But in its present reality, I can use it for my purposes. Something maybe a little closer to home, Paul the Apostle speaking, to keep me from getting a big fat head and a gigantic ego because I've been given great revelations. There was given me a thorn in my flesh, a messenger of Satan to torment me. Same thing. Why did God do it? Paul says, it turns out to be a pretty good deal because I've learned through my weakness and my distress that God has grounded me and it's a door of opportunity and, and God has made me the person I am through allowing me to bear that cross. And I look at it as evil and that it's from the enemy, but God said, you know what, Paul? I'm not taking it away because it fits my purpose. And he gave him grace. And he used Paul like nobody else on this planet. And so those are just uh, some things to reflect upon. Uh, an unlikely messenger indeed. But God's allowed something very troubling um, to serve a good purpose. And perhaps this is the purpose for Saul of the Old Testament. That, God, that he would repent that he would cry out to God in torment and say, I get it, I get it, I get it. I give up. I'm doing it your way. Because you know what? First Timothy chapter 2 and verse 4, God our Savior wants all men to come to the knowledge of the truth and be saved. That includes King Saul. And if it takes something evil and diabolical to torment a guy into eternal life, he will. Now, I'd rather be tickled with pleasure into eternal life myself, not tormented. But, you know, that's how some of us are. Amen? All right. So, God is a multitasker. So, the King Saul is troubled. The Lord is working in Saul. And through that, he's working on behalf of David. So, here's a paraphrase of 15 through 17. Saul's servants see him stressed out. They put two and two together and they say, hey, it looks like God is dealing with you through this evil thing. Maybe some music will soothe the madness. Why don't you let us track down a harp player? And when you get into these fits, he can play beautiful melodies and you'll feel a lot better. Saul says, great idea. Look for a really good musician and bring the guy to me. Now, hmm, I wonder... Who inspired that thought there? Now, what's Saul's problem? How is it manifesting? You know, really, what, what's going on that he's tormented? Well, uh, one commentator said, Today, Saul would be diagnosed as mentally ill, but his problem was spiritual in nature, not mental or psychological. There are many people, and I'm still quoting, in mental hospitals today that are really suffering from unrecognized spiritual issues. It's certainly wrong to assume that every case of mental distress is spiritual because chemical imbalances and psychological diseases are real in our fallen world. Even so, 
there are certainly some who suffer from a distressing spirit who need spiritual liberation and may never find help in the mental health system. I'm all for doctors of, for the mind, and I'm all for getting on meds if your doctor thinks you need to be on meds. But I'm also all for making a spiritual assessment. Is this problem a theological one? I, I knew I had a friend whose mom was institutionalized because she got it in her head that she was condemned with no hope. It drove her insane. She had to be hospitalized. No matter what you told her, no matter what scripture you gave her, she was convinced that she was going to be lost because she had done some terrible, unforgivable sin, which is something that a, a, a minority of Christians have dealt with because it's such a terrible thought. And we know how depraved we are, and so it kind of fits. But so is that the problem? Is it trying to live a double life? I know other people who have been in psych wards as backslidden Christians because they couldn't take the strain of living a fake Christian life and a terrible sinful life at the same time. I visited them. That can put you out. Sin will make you crazy. Now, it's not always the case, as I've already said, and we all know that. We have common sense. But I don't think we should rule it out. Our spirit impacts our body in ways that we don't even understand. And so something to always think about and to pray about and consider. Now, uh, often our spiritual condition is more apparent to others around us than it is for ourselves. So these attendants of King Saul say, hey, uh, man, you know, obviously... Uh, this is an evil spirit from God and tormenting you. And, and we even have the remedy. And so uh, just unbelievable. It's, he says, they say, seek out a man who's skillful in playing the heart. So essentially Saul's servants are advising that he would uh, find somebody that we would call a worship leader. They will seek out a man who can, using music, bring love, peace, and power to God, uh, from God rather, to Saul. God created music, and I already had this thought in my head because I'm preaching it tonight, but when I was worshiping with all of us, how powerful music is. It just cuts right to the quick of your heart and soul. And God has designed it that way. We worship in heaven, we sing in heaven, and so too here on earth because there's something very transformative I really, my heart goes out to folks who haven't learned how to enter the secret door of private worship. My heart goes out to you because you're missing out on this tremendous, transformative, freeing, liberating power that you know that you know your faith will never be the same because you're, you're in his presence and your soul knows it and feels it, and opens up, and is touched. And, and not only that, you're ministering to him. You are serving him in music ministry. And so let's finish up 18 through the end here. Uh, the last verse. 
One of the service servants answered. So, okay, so they're, they're saying, hey, we need a really good harp player. That's the answer. And so one of the servants just happens to know somebody and says, I have seen a son of Jesse. has got a lot of them, but one of them there in Bethlehem who knows how to play the harp. And that word in the Hebrew knows is adept and skilled. He is a brave man and a warrior. He speaks well, and he's a fine-looking man, and the Lord is with him. Then Saul sent messengers to Jesse and said, Send me your son David, the one with the sheep. (laughs) Verse 20. So Jesse took a donkey, loaded it with bread, a skin of wine, and a young goat, and sent them with his son David to Saul. David came to Saul and entered his service. Saul liked him very much, and David became one of his armor bearers. Then Saul sent word to Jesse, saying, Allow David to remain in my service, for I am pleased with him. Whenever the Spirit from God came upon Saul, David would take his harp and play. Then relief would come to Saul. He would feel better, and the evil spirit would leave him. Now, lastly then, number two, an open door. Now those harp lessons have really paid off and the Lord has opened a door of service for David to get him into position. Now, did anyone ever think that the harp player uh, really was was Israel's next king? Not really, probably. Uh, Number one, humble servitude brings exaltation every single time. So if David were more like King Saul, he'd resist the idea and the invitation. Excuse me, um, excuse me, but all of my brothers were refused. Samuel came to my house and we had a special service and anointed me. I'm not a lounge singer in a palace. I am going to be a ruler You want me to call Samuel? I'll get him on the line and we could talk this out because I'm not coming in to just play a harp. I'm coming in as the next king. Step aside. Well, he doesn't do that. He doesn't talk about the incident. He doesn't demand his position. He he doesn't talk about his dream or his aspirations. He quietly serves where God has put him. Now, a man came up to me about a month ago in the lobby, and he said, where do you need help? Where's the need in the church? I'd like to serve. And I said, well, what kinds of things are you interested in in the church? And he said, well, that's not the point. The point, pastor, is not where I want to serve, but where you would have me serve. Where is the need in the church? I have preferences, and I can tell you about them. But many times, and he's going on, many times people volunteer to serve where they want to serve, and it's no good to the pastor or the leadership because they already have people there. But they're asking for that position instead of saying, the heart of service is I'll serve wherever there's a need. That's the kind of man David is. He's like, sure, yeah, wow, I'm coming to the palace to play the harp. 
And even though they say, you know, we don't need a royal understudy, we just need a part-time harpist. Are you, are you okay with that? And he says, yes, I am. Now, of course, there's nothing wrong with letting leadership know what you're good at, where you feel called, and where your fit seems to be. But then we leave it. We leave it at that. Now, so David, um, coincidentally, somebody knows him there in verse 18. David, surprise, is nominated. And now I like what commentators say. The list of attributes that they say about David get linked by commentators to attributes of worship leaders and pastors. And so I just like what they say. They're number one, that he's be skilled. He needs to be skilled. So the heart matters in ministry and on the platform, but skill matters too. It's important. If you can't carry a tune, you shouldn't be on the worship team. And if you can't string three thoughts together without confusing people, you should not be a senior pastor responsible to feed the flock. I was online listening to sermons, as I often do, and I don't know how to say this, but I just, I was listening, I'll just pick one that I was listening to. No outline, no rhyme or reason, bringing things in all over the place like buckshot. And my heart just was grieved for the congregation because I knew there was a congregation there because you could hear them coughing (laughs) in the background. Uh, You know what? You don't have to be some stellar, eloquent person, but you need to evidence skill, whether you're in this position or that position. And uh, that's what they're looking for. Number two, he says he's a brave man, a warrior. Anybody on a platform has to be adept at spiritual warfare. It's just a frightful place. It is a dangerous place spiritually. You've got egos and pride and all kinds of contentious things that happen in, in, in elderships and worship teams. And, and, and we are blessed here. We are really blessed. But I'm telling you what, in 33 years, I've seen a lot of stuff. And when he says, by the way, he's a warrior. He's not just a musician. He's not just somebody on the platform. He, this guy can fight. And commentators say, that's what has to happen If you're going to lead in worship or if you're going to lead from the pulpit, you have to be able to battle. Uh, You have to be a diplomat to put out fires. You have to really war both in the flesh, in the world, worldly things, the devil. It's just terrible thing. People talk. It's just awful sometimes. A lot of work and a lot of fighting uh, of a battle. So much of what, here's a quote. So much of what makes a person a good musician or a good artist goes against true worship ministry. The desire for the spotlight, the desire for prominence, the desire for attention, the need for ego satisfaction, all work against effective spiritual leadership, effective spiritual worship leading. Uh, thirdly, verse 18, David is said to speak well. Leaders in any platform on any ministry need to have a tight rein on their tongues. 
If anyone considers himself religious and yet does not keep a tight rein on his tongue, he deceives himself and his religion is worthless. So I don't care how gifted a man is in the pulpit or gifted a worship leader is or an elder or anybody else in the church. If you are a gossiping or slander or backbiter, you, you negate any good thing that's going on here. You cannot use profane language. You know that there is a trend now in younger ministers to cuss from the pulpit. Yeah, that's very trendy right now. And the idea is, is that we're being more relevant. So just to kind of, you know, stop being so puritanical. Let's just get down to earth, you see. He speaks well. It means he has wisdom. He has a tight rein on his tongue. There's no coarse jesting. There's no gossiping, and there's no chattering like a fool. These are things, I mean, nobody's perfect, but these are things that they note in David. He speaks well. In other words, Saul, we're not going to have some chattering fool causing trouble, getting... uh, causing us to be totally, uh, what's the word, obnoxious. He's not going to be obnoxious with his mouth, and we're not going to, he's nice to be around is what I'm trying to say because he speaks well. Okay, last part of verse 18, the most important thing, the Lord is with him. So the Lord is obviously at work in and through him. So verse 19, Saul is sold, right? And what the king wants, the king gets. And so Saul seeks sends, rather, royal messengers to Mr. Jesse's place. So imagine the royal chariot pulls up, seven brothers and dad are floored. What does the king want? And maybe they've been wondering, what's going on with our brother here with the anointing ceremony, you know? Interesting verse. Send your boy, the one with the sheep, to me. Notice this. David, after the anointing, went back to the sheep pen. He figures, if God wants me in a palace, God will bring me there. If God wants me in a position of some kind of honor, God will put me there. He will never, going back to the sheep pen, he will never have to ask himself, was this me manipulating myself into this position or did God put me here? That's the the most wonderful thing in the world is to be able to say, you know, I'm in a situation that I didn't force. I didn't push. I didn't manipulate this. It opened up to me. God put me there. Oh, what confidence, what joy, what assurance. David didn't need to manipulate himself into position because he let God open doors for him. The chariot arrives, doesn't it? He's escorted. To the palace. From where? From where he went right back to serving as business as usual. God, this is in your hands. And so uh, dad, Jesse, says yes to Saul's request. Of course, he's the king. They pack up provisions and send David off. Verse 21, David enters royal service. Saul likes him very much. For now, 
He likes him very much, but he's going to start thinking, boy, everybody really likes this guy. He's a good fighter. He's a good singer. The girls like him. You know, uh, I kill 10,000, but he kills 10,000 times 10,000, you know, and now he's st he won't always just like him very much. So uh, he sends a, another message to dad there in verse 22, and he says, hey, I like your kid. Let me keep him. And then verse 23, so in between carrying armor and war drills, when Saul has his crises, uh, the evil spirit oppresses him, David plays, and relief comes, and evil flees. So these are important times for David. He's preparing. He's got like 15, 20 years to watch how kings rule and what not to do, watching King Saul, but he's, he's being prepared and he's not forcing the situation. It's great. The thing that I really, that stood out to me as I bring my remarks to a close, this, the key to David's success in life is in verse 18. The Lord was with him. Now, that's the secret to Joseph's life, Genesis 39. Joshua, the secret to Joshua, the Lord was with him, Joshua 6. The key to Samuel's godliness and being a Bible hero, 1 Samuel 3.19, the Lord was with him. Jehoshaphat, conqueror, 2 Chronicles 17.3, the Lord was with him. The men of Judah who won this crazy battle, it says the, the Lord was with them. Is the Lord with you? He is with you. The question is, are you with him? That will make all the difference between success and failure. The Lord, my friend, is with you. Think about that. I can do all things through Christ who gives me strength. The Lord is with me. The Lord is for me. Who could be against me? He's saying, nothing can stop you. I'm with you. I'm in you. I'm above you. I'm underneath you. The everlasting arms. But are you with me? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. I thank you for these two lives that we're learning so much from. Help us to apply these truths to our hearts and lives each day. In Christ's name, amen.